Good morning, everyone. I want to thank Jesse. It's great to be a part of helping to train other young men for the advancement of the gospel, isn't it? It's a joy to see the, the young men that the Lord is, is raising up, bring to our church, including our youth pastor, Jeremy, who just did the announcements. He neglected to make one more announcement, but probably out of humility. But this will be the last Sunday that Jeremy uh, is a single man. So he's getting married on Saturday. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So be praying for Jeremy and Emily. Their marriage uh, will, Lord willing, take place this Saturday. We're excited about it. She's such a great girl as well. I told him if he doesn't marry her, his, his hiring was contingent on marrying her. So, so I'm glad he followed through because we really want to keep him. Also, just a, just a quick item of, a number of you may have, um, there's been a few people that have raised questions about what does the Bible teach about the role of men and women and their involvement in the local church and services? And some of you may have grown up and maybe been taught that men pretty much do most everything in the services. And, and I just want to mention that really that's not biblical. It may be traditional, but it certainly isn't what the Bible teaches. So um, we have women that are, and it's a blessing that are involved in we just saw the, the passing out of communion, announcements, um, um, collecting the offering. So if any of you ha are, are kind of like, is that okay? Um, yeah, there's really nothing in the Bible about that. But if you would like to discuss that, some of you are like, really? People are asking that? But yeah, depending on your tradition or background. So we just want to let you know that, you know, if you have questions, we're here to talk about it. But we certainly want to say we want to follow the word and we can't see anything in the Word that would prevent that. Okay, so this morning, since we're following the Word, I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 12, if you would. And if you don't have a Bible, our ushers have plenty more. It was a joy to have many visitors last Sunday. I think we ended up having about 1,100 people between the three services, which was such a blessing to have people that are just hearing the gospel for the first time. We had a number of people make professions or rededication. And again, the more important thing is to see people growing in the Lord and following Christ. You know our mission. It's not to get soul scalps or to get people's money, but to advance the gospel and then make disciples who make disciples. It's this ongoing multiplication process. And one of the ways that we advance the gospel among many is through studying the word. And we've been going through the book of Romans, as you can see, and we are beginning a new section this morning, a really important section of the book, but it's very important to understand where it falls within the book. We're now reaching the part of the book which most theologians call the application of the gospel. So the first four chapters we said are the heart of the gospel. This is how you get right with God. Many people are taught that it's by being good or being religious, and we learn from Romans 1 through 4 just as Jesse reminded us that that all of us are sinners and that the only way to get right with God is not through our works, but through the work of Christ on the cross when he died and, and shed his blood for the complete forgiveness of our sins. So when we put our faith in Christ and we trust him as our Lord and Savior, the Bible says we're justified. We're declared righteous by God. But then we looked at chapters 5 through 8, which we called the hope of the gospel. And there we saw that God doesn't just give us hell insurance, but he gives us 
the current hope that he's changing us. He's sanctifying us. He's progressively changing me into the image of Christ. He's given me the spirit. He's adopted me. He's made me a new person alive to him. And I now have the capacity to walk in the spirit and show love to others, put to death the deeds of the flesh. And then my future hope is no matter what I'm going through now, nothing can separate me from his love and I'm going to be with him in glory forever. But then we look for the last few weeks at Romans 9 through 11 where it's kind of like, why is Paul talking about Jews? And we call that the defense of the gospel because the relevant question in the Roman church is, why are there so few Jews getting saved and why are there so many Gentiles getting saved? I thought God chose the Jews and we learned that God has currently set aside and hardened most of the nation of Israel. And it's also because of their rejection that God has, for the most part, turned from working primarily with Jews. There are a few, he says, a remnant, and we should bring the gospel to all Jews, praying that they'll get saved. But we saw that right now God's bringing in the fullness of the Gentiles. Many, many Gentiles all over the world are getting saved. But ultimately, we saw last week that, or two weeks ago, in the future, right before Christ comes, there's going to be a massive conversion of Jews. And so Paul's doing, uh, kind of toggling back and forth, and he ends chapter 11 by saying, oh, God's wisdom and mercy, to him be all the glory. Well, this morning, now we're going to get down to the brass tacks, the, 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 the real rubber meets the road. What does it mean to live the Christian life? It's interesting when you watch people's conversions. Some people get that right away. I mean, from the moment they trust Christ, they're like, Lord, what do you want me to do? Like the Apostle Paul, who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? I want to live my life for you. Other people, it seems to be gradual. They sort of start realizing, oh, well, wait, if Jesus is my Lord and Savior, I guess there's implications to that, and, 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 and I need to start thinking about God's will for my life. Well, this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13, and we're going to talk primarily about two things. Number one, the first and most important thing for us as believers to do is to surrender ourselves wholly to God. Now, some of you go, oh, yeah, I already know that. We all need to hear this over and over again. This is not something that you just do once back at Hickory Springs Camp when you're nine years old. This is an ongoing, conscious wholehearted surrender to God. And we're going to talk about what that looks like. But then, immediately following that, Paul makes a very strong assertion that the second thing we do once we're surrendered to God and allowing God to transform us is we get connected to a local church and we get involved, okay? There's no such thing in the New Testament as people just coming to Christ and then just kind of just kind of, well, we, we, we don't, we don't, we just worship God on our own. We don't, we're not involved in a church. That's absolutely the opposite of God's design and his desire for us. So let's look at verses one and two to begin. We'll have a word of prayer and we'll start with surrendering to God. Father, I ask that the Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts and help us to realize just what it looks like to surrender ourselves to God. This, this passage is both convicting and incredibly encouraging. So may you May you move in our hearts, Lord, all of us. I need to hear this. We all need to hear this. So speak powerfully through your spirit to bring Jesus to the forefront here and to bring us to a place of joyful surrender. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's start in verses one and two. 
I want to read them both together, and then we'll come back and sort of look at them. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So, so just kind of let that sink in. There's this wholehearted surrender. But then he says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the reason that he wants us to do that is so that you can prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So I want to start with this first premise. What does it mean to surrender wholly to God? Paul says, I urge you. Now, when he says, I urge you, some people might think that this is optional. Like, you don't have to, but, you know, if you want to. This is a word that Paul frequently uses for Christian dedication. But it, you might as well just say, I, I, I command you. He, he's giving apostolic authority to say, this is incredibly important. Now, when he says, therefore, notice that he's connecting it by the mercies of God. Now, this is really, really important. Anybody who's a Christian knows that they're supposed to be living for the Lord. But the motivation for that is so important. Why should I surrender myself wholly to God? A lot of people sort of do that, but for, for maybe the wrong motives. Maybe, maybe they're afraid. Like, I don't want Jesus to, to, to smack me. Or, I want to get a blessing, man. I, I want God to, to pour out his blessing so I can get... You know, lots of stuff. Or, well, I don't want anybody to think I'm a bad Christian. Those aren't really the proper motivations. The proper motivation for, for a Christian to surrender wholly to God is, Paul says, by the mercies of God. In other words, on account of the mercies of God that we've received. Now, I want you to think about the fact that he puts it in plural here. I mean, we just saw back in chapter 11, he, he used the word mercy in the singular. He kept saying you know, God shut everyone under sin so he could show mercy to them. But here he puts it in the plural, right? Think about the manifold mercies of God. It's not like there's just one singular mercy. God's blessings on us as Christians are unbelievably gracious and merciful. The, the, the reality that Jesus would go to that cross, even though I deserve to go to hell. And there's no reason for him to do that other than his, his wonderful love and mercies toward us. The mercy that he would have to forgive me, to patiently put up with me, to give me his spirit, to go and prepare a place for, for us. So frequently Christians should be thinking about and, and praising God for his mercies in our life. Every morning when you wake up, Lamentations chapter 3 says, God is faithful and his mercies are new every morning. Every morning there's a fresh supply of mercy. No wonder, no wonder David said in the Psalms, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing. And so as a result of just assessing and saying, you know what, I, I really deserve to be in hell. I deserve to be cut off from God. I deserve the consequences of my sin. But God loved me and awakened me and called me to himself, forgave me and promised to work in my life until the day he brings me to glory. That should be the fuel that motivates us. We call this gospel-driven application. So, so think about that. Because God has shown such incredible mercy to you, he says, I want you now, Tom and, and, and church, to present your bodies, okay? Okay. 
Now, why didn't he say, give, give your heart to the Lord or, or give your spirit to Jesus? But, but the idea of our bodies is it's all-inclusive because your body can't be separated from your soul. So you're giving yourself wholly to God. You're saying to God, Lord, the rest of my life is not about me anymore. That, that's over with. I've lived for myself for all these years. Now you forgave me. Now you bought me with your blood. Now you put your spirit inside of me. Okay, Lord, I'm going to live my life wholly surrendered to you. Which means, God, if you want me to change jobs, I belong to you. If, if you want me to go to the ends of the earth as a missionary, I belong to you. If you want me to start a new ministry, or if you want me to, to get rid of a habit in my life, I belong to you. This is really, really important, and this is not something, in years past, there were a lot of preachers who made a big deal about the tense of this word, that it's the aorist tense, and it's once for all. But, but of late, it's become very clear that that's not at all the meaning of this tense of the verb. It's not just something you do once, a one and done, right? It's an ongoing thing, but it starts with a, a, an extreme and severe, very conscious surrender to God. Now, the first thing I want to ask you is, some of you, or let me ask it this way, can you remember a time in your life when you've done this, right? Can you go, the I remember the first time I really got this, and I really said, okay, God, from now on, it's for you. This is going to be radical. It could change my marriage. It might affect my golf swing. It might affect the hours. I mean, God, it's all yours, right? If you can't think of a time that you've ever done that, then God is clearly speaking to you right now. The Holy Spirit is saying to you, there it is. If you know you're saved, it's time to do that, okay? But if you, if you say, well, well, well I, I did that a long time ago. See, it's both a crisis and a process because there's the constant renewal to your commitment, much like a marriage. I did this a long time ago. I said, I do. But I'm called by God, and it's a privilege then to live that out and to practice loving my wife wholly and in a dedicated covenant commitment. And frankly, there are times that I'm doing well at that and other times where I'm doing very poorly. So this is why we all need to hear this. And this morning, we're going to close with a, with a renewal where we go, okay, God, here I am. I'm, I'm dedicating myself afresh to you. Now, let's keep reading. He says, doing this is, is a living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Now, those three, three terms describe this process. Living here probably implies one of two things. Either it's living, like he said in chapter 6, you're dead to sin and alive to God, or it could imply the, the strange implications of this contrast between a sacrifice and living. There's an irony there, like if you sacrifice something, it's dead, right? And in some ways, this would be a lot easier if that's what happened. If, if all God said was just come up on the altar and die, and then I'll bring you up to heaven. But he doesn't. He says, come up on the altar and die to yourself. But now I want you to live for me. 
So, so the songwriter captured this in the, in the song, Trust and Obey. He says, we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for those who will trust and obey. But here's the deal. You can look back and say, yeah, I remember I did that. I, I, I was so thankful to God I did that. But I think if you're like me, you, you also could say, there have been times where I've said, God, if you'll just excuse me, and I got off the altar, and I decided to engage in my thing again, whatever that might be. And so it's passages like this that say, no, no, no. You don't just do this once. You take up your cross daily. You listen to the word of God, and the spirit of God draws us back into that. And so it's living. It's holy. Now, the word holy just means it's set apart for God. And then it's acceptable to God. This is, this is pleasing to God. This is what he wants you to do. Now, you'll notice that the next phrase says, it's your spiritual service of worship. Now, remember that any English Bible that we're reading is a translation. And the word translated spiritual here is, is the Greek word from which we get the English word logical or logic. And much more frequently, the word has the implication of something that's reasonable or, or, or logical. It just makes sense. And so I personally think it would be better translated here, and some translations say this, your reasonable service of worship. The reason why some translators do this is because it, it's used with the word worship and because this word is used sometimes with another word that means spiritual. But Paul has a different word for spiritual that he uses very, very frequently. So for that reason, I would say it's better to say this is your reason. This is, it makes sense. It's illogical. It's, it's ridiculous. It's insane to think that Jesus would buy us with his blood and then we go, hey, thanks for doing that, but I'm not going to live for you, right? It's your logical service of worship. When my wife was a little girl, she tells a story of riding past a pond and, and her dad was an electrician. A little boy had fallen through the ice and, and her dad got out of the car and threw him an electrical line and, and, and got it around the boy and pulled him out and saved his life. And she just remembered that as a little kid, didn't have much of a, you know, clear picture of it. But when she was in high school, she met a, a, a fellow classmate because the pond was in front of her high school. And her classmate said, yeah, when I was a little boy, I fell through the ice and some guy, some guy came along and, and he threw me electrical wire and he pulled me out of the water. And I was like, wow, that must have been so cool. What did he do? Because I'm thinking in my mind, I'm thinking if that was me, I'd be like, that was your dad? Where do you live? I'm going to your house. And at that time, her dad had a rare illness that, that he was pretty much paralyzed. And you would think that that young man would say, dude, you saved my life. Mister, can I cut wood for you? Can, can I, um, can, can, can I, what can I do to, to, to show you my gratitude? Beside the fact that his daughter, Tammy, was really cute and he could have got a chance to see her, right? But you just go, yeah, common sense, logic, reason says if someone saves your life, that, that you feel a sense of love and gratitude and you'll want to serve them. And, and that's what I want to encourage you for. If you are not serving Christ out of gratitude, then God's desire is for you to move towards that, to pray that as you look away to Christ and his love for you becomes more and more real and you get that you're accepted, that that will then result in a willingness to do anything for him out of gratitude. Now, how do you sustain that? Because we could have like a Mary Kay rally where we could really work ourselves into a ladder. All right, now, 
You, when I say three, everybody put your hand up and say, I'm ready for Jesus. Let's go out and do that. And what happens is this is what often happens at camps. And, and I'm all for Christian camping. People make great decisions for Christ at Christian camps. The problem is sustaining that is just as important. So, and you, you get this. Those of you who grew up in a Christian home, every year you go to camp, you go forward, you know, you say, I'm not going to beat up my brother anymore, and I promise I'll do the dishes, and I'm going to read my Bible, and that usually lasts about, you know, if it's a good, a good one, maybe two weeks. And then you're like, oh. And that's why even in some churches, they have these ongoing meetings, they call them revivals, where, you know, we'll just get revived again. So what I want to encourage you to do is to say, listen, surrendering to God is, is, a, is a, a clear decision, but then it involves a, an ongoing spiritual discipline to, to, to live it out. So notice how Paul explains this. This is still part of surrendering to God. He says, so here's how this looks in your life. Now that I surrender to God, he says, do not be conformed to this world. Now, Let's start with the word world there. That's not the normal word for world. Like the word that's used in John 3.16 or, or the word that's, that says do not love the world. Literally that word means age. Do not be conformed to this age. And the Bible holds out there's two ages. There's the age in which we're living now. And then there's the age to come. After Jesus returns, the Bible calls that the age to come. And only those who are redeemed and, and forgiven by Christ are, are going to be in, the, in the, the kingdom of God. Everyone else is going to be in hell. So while we live in this age, God describes this age. Galatians 1, it says, Christ came to die for us to deliver us from this present evil age. This is not a good old world that we live in. It's an evil system. The world is, and this present age is, is, is under a delusion. The seven billion people that are walking around on this planet, most of them are in rebellion against God. Most of them are, are deceived by Satan and held in his power. So when the Bible says, do not be conformed to this age, much of it has to do with, with the way you view life. You see, sometimes we'll take words like this and we'll say, don't be worldly. Don't, don't wear makeup. Don't go to the movies because that's worldly. That, that's so off balance there. To be conformed to the world is to just live like unbelievers, leaving God out. We tend to sort of, we tend to sort of narrow that down and say, you know, worldly people, they dress lusty and they, and they smoke and they, and they drink too much and, and they're, they're of the devil, right? It's far more subtle than that. It's, it's a way that you view your life. Anytime we leave God out, of our life. We might be pursuing good and wholesome things, but if you leave God out, you're being conformed to this age. And so how am I going to avoid... See, Christians have, tr have focused on externals. Don't dress like the world does, right? Silly stuff. I remember years ago, um, Josh McDowell had a great illustration of this. He was promoting a Christian rock band called Striper, which, you know... I can't even understand what they're saying. You know, I mean, like, and, and I'm not certainly promoting them, but a group of pastors came to one of his conferences and they're like, Striper's bad, Josh. And he goes, well, why? And he goes, because 
The, the pastors are all out there and they're going, because they do rock and roll and, and look how they dress in their crazy outfits. They're just like the world, right? And Josh McDowell said, hmm, that's interesting. He said, let me ask you pastors a question. How, how, do, how do employees of IBM dress? Well, the pastor said, well, <laughs> you know, honorably, in a white shirt, a tie, and a dark navy coat. And Josh said, okay. He said, how many of you are wearing a, a dark navy coat and a white shirt and tie right now? And most of the group stood up. He said, you're conformed to this world. Stop it. You're dressing like those people at IBM. And so suddenly there's this, this sense that, you know, worldliness means if, if, the, if the world combs their hair this way, I don't, wanna, don't even go there. <laughs> stop it. Just stop it. I'm not even going to allow that. If the world combs their hair this way, I comb mine this way. That's silly. It's not about external things that the Bible doesn't discuss. Sure, it talks about modesty, but some of the things that we call worldly are silly. Make sure that they're directed by Scripture. So here's how Paul teaches us to do that. Don't be conformed to this world, but, well, how am I going to change? He said you become transformed. And this is the word, many of you know this, from which we get the word metamorphosis. God wants you and me to be changed, right? And true change starts on the inside, it doesn't start on the outside. It starts on the inside. In fact, the Bible says we have already been created by God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So God has planted within us a new seed of God. The Holy Spirit's in us. He's given us a, a new heart. And then he says, now, the way that that's going to begin to metamorphose you, to, to bring you through a metamorphosis is as you renew your mind. Now, notice that this transformation, he doesn't say, transform yourself. He says, God will transform you. But this is where people go, I just let go and let God. He goes, no, no, no. God will transform you, but here's what you need to do. You need to be renewing your mind. How do you do that? Do, do, we, do we all sign up for a lobotomy? Like, I need to get a new mind, right? No, it's a process, Okay. And the, the primary way that God renews our mind is through Scripture, okay? So when I hear Christians say, I don't like to read, and I'm like, okay, I'll grant you that. But, but there better be some way that the Scriptures are coming into your mind, and they're engaging your thought process, and you're learning how they're shaping your worldview and how you want to live your life. So this is a great plug for, remember the seminar we just had where we talked about a gospel-centered transformation. So as I'm thinking and reading scripture, God is working inside of me. I'm, I'm reflecting on the gospel and I'm going, hmm, in light of that, I guess I, I, I probably need to have a different view than the world has. Now, some things are pretty, pretty straightforward. Like, you know, people go, well, well can I believe in abortion? Can I believe in this? Can I believe in that? And, and of course, there's some gray to that. People are like, well, what about in the case of rape or whatever? And even though I still think, you know, the Bible is clear that life begins at conception, the point would be, I need to let God change my way of thinking. And this is why the Bible doesn't say, have your devotions, right? And so we sort of legalistically impose this on our kids. You better have your devotions. It's not about having your devotions. It's about Developing your relationship with God and worshiping Him and loving Him and reading Christian books. Pastor John's been putting out 
regular Christian videos to sort of think about. We, we, we have a, a book table back there. You can, you can listen to pods and sermons and, and engage with other Christians in Bible study. And what you'll find is as God shapes the way you think, listen, always this happens. When your beliefs change, your behavior changes. It shapes the way you discipline your children. You don't just say, we don't do that because we're Christians. You don't just lie, boy. You do what's right. And Okay, well, they get the outside. Okay, I'm not supposed to lie. But they don't get the inside. Like why and how and why do I lie? You know, people don't all lie for the same reasons. And so we start exploring, what does the Bible say about how I should treat my wife? Not what's everybody else doing at work going, yeah, the old lady, she's my ball and chain. That's not what the Bible says. And, and how do I speak about my husband? And, and how do I view my money? And how do I view politics? And, and how do I engage with, with unbelievers? All of this comes as I'm in the word. And so I want to encourage you, if you don't have a disciplined, regular time where you're being exposed to scripture, you'll never change. How are you going to change? This is the fuel by which God transforms us. So I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind. And then here's what's going to happen. Paul says, so that you can prove what the will of God is. This word prove means to test. It means to examine. So think about this. So, so this morning we renew our commitment to God. Oh God, you bought me with a price. I want to live my life for you. And then as I go through the week, I'm examining, does this please the Lord? Is this the best way to, to spend my time? Should I, should I be using my money for this or for this? What about my recreation? Should, is, does this book, does this television show? See, it's not like a list of rules where we're going to tell you, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. We're going to say, listen, get in the word of God. And the Holy Spirit, through the word, is going to transform you. And, and you're going to learn, as Hebrews 5 says, mature Christians begin to discern good and evil. And you're going to start to learn about Christian liberty and realize there's a lot of things the Bible doesn't discuss. So I don't need to get bent out of shape if, if one person says, you know, I don't work on the Sabbath. Another person says, well, I don't think there's anything wrong with it because we're looking to the word of the Lord and we're being transformed. And notice that as we're doing that, what we're doing is we're learning what the will of God is. And Paul says three things about the will of God. It's good. It's, it's acceptable to God. It's perfect. It's complete. So here's the thing. A lot of us are like, that scares me. You, you, you're telling me God wants me to surrender to him? That, that frankly scares me because I, I, I know what he's going to do. First of all, he's going to tell me if I'm not married, you can't get married. And I really want to. And then... I hate Chinese food, but he's going to make me go to China, or I'm scared of spiders. He's going to make me go to the jungle. Snakes terrify me. He's going to send me to snake land, right? What does that say about your view of God? If he sent his only son for us, he didn't spare Jesus for us. Do you think he's up there in heaven going, just give me a reason to make your life miserable? <laughs> Now, this is important. I want you to think about this. Have you ever met anyone who lived a life surrendered to God who came back and said, trust me, that was a big mistake. I suffered a lot, right? And frankly, some of them go, I suffered a lot. But with great joy, they tell their story of how God unfolded 
good and beautiful things. And they were able to fulfill their passions because God was working in them to will and work for his good pleasure. So frankly, it's kind of dumb to think that if you surrender to God, you're going to be unfulfilled. Because the beaches of time are riddled with Christians who have said, I had it my way. Frank sinatra did it. And at the end of their life, they're going, what a waste. What a waste. I didn't live my life for Christ. I lived it for myself. And now I can gather my portfolio, but I wasted my family. Or, or I live for silly things instead of eternal things. And so this is a great challenge. And this is an ongoing process. I want to encourage you. Paul said it this way in Ephesians 5. It's an interesting cross-reference. He said, the fruit of Christian living is to try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. And then he said, don't be foolish then, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so that's very specific. I can't tell you, okay, it's God's will for you to work here or to work here, or it's God's will for you to... There's many things that are, that are not clearly, there's one verse that says, do this or don't do that. So this morning, I, I, I'm, I'm challenging you and me to commit yourself, surrender wholly to God. Let go of those, those weights and things that are holding you back. Whatever your fears are, you're like, oh, God's not going to come through for me. The best thing, the safest thing, the most joyful thing, the, the beautiful thing is to give ourselves wholly to God and then live daily being renewed and letting him change us. Okay, now, having said that, people go, yeah, 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 I get that. But I do that on my own. And God's going, no, 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 no. The first thing you're going to do once you do that is he goes, connect to Christian community, local church, okay? And this is what's mind-boggling in American Christianity, that there are so many people out there who go, oh, yeah, I'm saved. I'm bought in the blood of Jesus. I love the Lord. You go to church? Nah. Nah, that's, that's overrated. It's a bunch of hypocrites, right? You involved in a Christian fellowship? Nah. Nah, I don't have time for that. It's just so unbiblical. So immediately, Paul teaches us then, and we're going to look at some applications of this, get involved with the church. Look at verse 3. Paul says in verses 3 and 4, the first thing you want to do is assess your giftedness because you're going to use your gifts in the church. For through the grace given to me, I say, now notice, to every man among you. Now, he doesn't mean only men. If you were here this morning, you go, he's not talking to me. If you're a Christian, God's talking to you. Every one of us, don't go, oh, I'm not a pastor, or I'm just a young person, or every Christian, Paul says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Do a sound assessment of yourself, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And there's a lot of discussion about what he means on that, and so I don't want to take too much time, but I think the point here is that God does give us faith, and faith is a spiritual gift, but but each of us have, have a capacity to trust God, some more than others. But the point is, number one, don't overestimate yourself. But here's what I find far more in Christianity, is a lot of Christians underestimate themselves. Oh, I don't, I don't, we pay, we pay Tom and Bob and John and Jeremy to, and Austin to be good, but we're good for nothing. It's like, no, you're not good for nothing. You're a child of God, and, and God has given you spiritual abilities. There's no exceptions. Because keep reading. Paul says, just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and members of one another. So you cannot live your Christian life solo. My hand cannot 
cut itself off and go, I'm just going to be a hand. It can't do that. It will die. And so when we encourage you to get engaged in a smaller group, it's purposeful. Because this is the place where you learn to live the Christian faith and interact with one another and use your gifts. So Paul says in verse 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let's exercise them accordingly. I want to say a couple of things briefly about spiritual gifts. Every one of us has a spiritual gift. If you're a believer, 1 Peter 4.10 says, each one of us has a spiritual gift, at least one. Now, some of you have not yet discovered it. And once you discover it, then you develop it. And some of you may have used to use it, but you've neglected it. And so Paul told Timothy, don't neglect the gift that was in you. The New Testament lists 21 spiritual gifts. And the broadest way to look at it is these are God-given abilities to, to serve in the body of Christ. Most of the things that gifts call for, we're all supposed to do anyway. But if you're gifted in something, that's the area that you'll be most passionate about. That's the area where you'll make the greatest contribution. Now, in the broadest sense as well, you could think of gifts and speaking gifts and serving gifts. Paul says in, or Peter says in 1 Peter 4.11, use your gifts to serve one another. If you speak, speak the word of God. So some of you have gifts like teaching or exhortation or evangelism or encouragement. But some of you have serving gifts. You're like, I'd rather poke my eyes out than stand in front of people and teach. God's not asking everybody to, to stand in front of people, people and speak. You may have gifts of administration or service or helps or mercy. So let's briefly look at these gifts, and then we're going to, to close. We're just going to go to verse 8 for, for time's sake today. But let, let's outline the gifts that Paul mentions here. He says, if you have the gift of prophecy... Prophesy according to the proportion of your faith. Now, prophecy is a really important gift in the New Testament. It's not quite the same as teaching. Now, some of you are going to have different views on the use of some of the gifts that have miraculous manifestations. There are a number of Christians that believe that certain miracle manifestation gifts are no longer in operation. That tongues or prophecy, or miraculous healings by the laying on of hands by a gifted person with the gift of healing. They, they're not for today. God's done with that. And those who hold to that, that view is called cessationism. Okay? And that's not part of our doctrinal statement. We don't require that if you are part of an e-free church, you have to embrace that or not embrace that. Personally, I am not a cessationist. I believe that these gifts are still in operation, even though many of the supposed manifestations of them are not following Scripture and clearly violations of what the Bible teaches. So the gift of prophecy in the New Testament was to receive a revelation from God. It was not authoritative Scripture. It was not something that if anybody said, God told me this, then that proved it. In fact, there was a misuse of it to the point where Paul told the Thessalonians, don't despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, if a prophet prophesies, the spirit of the prophets is subject to prophets. So it wasn't a free-for-all where someone could just stand up and say, God just told me to give all your money to the church, sell your houses and give it all to the church. This is the word of the Lord. But, but God would put a revelation 
in someone's mind. And in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul said, we can all prophesy for edification and exhortation and consolation. You can stir people up. You can cheer them up. You can build them up. But then Paul moves to teaching. He says, if you're a teacher, do it in your teaching. If you have the gift of serving, where you just like to help out, you're like, show me where I can get involved. Do so in serving. If you exhort. Now, to exhort someone means to come alongside and to, to encourage or, or, or apply the Bible to their life. Sometimes it's by way of warning. Sometimes it's, it's by way of correction. Often it's just to come alongside and say, come on, you can do it. But it has a very applicational stirring people up to apply the Bible to their lives. Now again, we're all supposed to exhort, teach one another, encourage one another, but different people have different gifts. He who gives. Now again, imagine if someone says, I don't have the gift of giving, so I don't do that. Paul says, he who gives, give liberally, give generously. This is the word for cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. He who leads with diligence. And then he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let me just say this real quick. As I was going through this, I was thinking, wow, it's kind of an interesting, as I was thinking about our pastoral leadership, and then he says, let love be without hypocrisy, I was thinking, okay, um, Pastor John is an incredibly gifted teacher, loves to read and think and, 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 and organize and systematize doctrine. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't apply or exhort or anything, but he's incredible. And then you think of Austin. I mean, Austin, he has a, a tremendous ability to motivate and to exhort us to, to, to really get out there and, and live our lives for the Lord. And then I was thinking about Pastor Bob. He who leads, our lead pastor, who's a visionary. And notice that he says the leader has to do so with diligence. And, and here's why. Because if you're under others, they're watching you. When you're the leader, there's a, there, there could be a tendency to be a little more slack. You know, I'm the boss. You don't question the boss, man. You're talking to me. I'm the boss, right? So, and I want to I say, I thank God for Bob's leadership here and the fact that he's doing this with diligence. I mean, I don't know. Some of you know I have, a, this, I'm only part-time here. But Bob, you know, this guy's putting in 60 hours a week. He's, he's, he's allowing God to use his gifts to, to direct us. Now, it's not like we're all just going, yes, Bob, yes, Bob. We just follow him like this. But it was just neat. And then I, and then I thought of Pastor Jeremy and, and the unusual love. This guy pours out love upon our kids. He just, he just oozes with it. Every time he stands up, he goes, I loved spending time with our kids this, this weekend at the retreat. And it was just neat to think of the, the different gifts. And then you go, what about you, Tom? I'm like, I don't know. I just show up and have, a, have fun with everybody. <laughs> but as we close this morning, I really want to challenge you to say, you go, well, I don't know if I have any of those gifts. You might not, but there's other gifts. And God wants you to discover and develop them. But as we close this morning, Benjamin's going to come. And just before we sing a song, an old gospel hymn that we've sung many times, I Surrender All, I want to challenge you this morning. I truly believe God's speaking to us as a church. We have a tremendously gifted body. We have gifted people, right? And we're seeing the Holy Spirit bring people to Christ. We're seeing groups developing, we're seeing community happening, we're seeing ministry, we're engaged in a spiritual warfare. But I believe that God is doing a great work here. And, 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 and his call for us this morning is, for some of you, this is your first time 
to dedicate yourself completely to God. If you're out there and you're going, I'm saved, but I've never been baptized, you know, I'm not going to do that. That's time to get past that and say, God bought you by the blood of Jesus. If you say, oh, I don't want to be a member, I just like to come once in a while. If you're not going to become a member of this community, then go somewhere and become a member of a gospel-centered community, right? And if you're not in a small group, if you're like, well, you know, I, I just don't have time to get involved with other Christians, you know, I'm trying to, trying to just take care of the family, right? That's not what God's calling us to do. He's calling us to be transformed. This morning, you might say, I don't, I don't do devotions regularly. And God's going, oh, oh, I see. You're an exception. You, you don't, you're, you're not being transformed. You're not spending time with me. I haven't read a Christian book in years. So I want to lead us in a, in a prayer. And, and as you're praying with me, I want to encourage you to join me. And then we're going to express our response to God in song. Just in your heart, Father, thank you so much for your mercy to me. Thank you that Jesus bought me by his blood. Now I want to give you an opportunity either for the first time to surrender your life to God. Just say, Lord, what will you have me to do? I give myself to you, holy. And if you've already done that, renew that this morning. Lord, I want to lay it all on the altar. And if you haven't been in the word regularly, Lord, help me to start renewing my mind so I can be transformed. And if you are doing that regularly, praise the Lord. Lord, guide me to make good decisions, not conform to what the world's doing. Lord, renew my thinking so I can prove what your will is. And then finally, if you're not committed to your local church and you're not in a community, Lord, I'm willing. I'm willing to get involved in a small group. I'm willing to start serving. Show me how I can serve the body of Christ. I surrender to you. Help me to discover and use my gifts. And if you're not a believer, if you're not sure if you've forgiven yet, just the best you know how, just repent and say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died to save me. I'm willing to follow you. Would you come into my life and save me and forgive me and transform me by your grace? Thank you, Lord, that we can express this dedication to you in song. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing. All to Jesus I surrender All to Him I freely give I will ever love and trust Him 